to God. And so our aim, and this is very practical when people come in for counseling, is they often come in saying, I want this to make me happy. And to be, I mean, I'm not this blunt usually, but practically your happiness is secondary to me. What matters is that you please God, and in the short term, that may not make you happy. And so when I'm counseling, I'm representing the Lord, and sometimes people come in and their goals are wrong. And ultimately the greatest happiness will be in pleasing God, but so that's our aim. Now next would be anthropology. How do they view, how does secular psychology view the human being? How do we come here? We're, we've evolved. In no come, huh? No plan. No, like right. No design. No right. What else it would be important? Well, let's say, how do we view human beings? We are created in God's image. But there's also a difference in terms of they see us as being merely physical beings. They would say everything you feel, think, is just electronic activity in your brain and your neurons and everything else. We believe that we have a soul. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we believe we are created. We believe we're in the image of God. They believe we're merely animals that evolved by chance. They believe we're merely physical. We believe that you know, even when we die, we, we have a spiritual self. And that's very, very important. It is a distinction. We are above the animals. We have dominion. And we're made in the image of God. Next would be ailment. Ailment. What's wrong with us? Well, what does psychology say? Huh? Yeah, we need self-realization. Uh, we need to be happy. And, and why aren't we happy? They both begin with N. Nature and nurture. Either something in your DNA is causing you to want to be an addict, or the way you were raised, or what trauma you experienced as a child is causing you to be an abuser now. And so they will never use the word S-I-N. You know, it's going to be you're damaged by your bad luck in the DNA draw, or your bad luck in the family and you know, the people around you. Now, according to the Bible, what's wrong with us? I've already given you the answer, right? It's sin, that all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The heart is deceitful, desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so the, the, the ailment is sin. Now we acknowledge that people's nature and nurture are influences, okay? We understand if you grew up in a really hard situation that influences you now. We understand that some people are, going to use a non-scientific scientific term, wired in certain ways uh, and may have things you know, about them physically that affect them, but we would deny that those could ever cause you to sin. That, you know, so we see the illness and now, how many A's have I done? Good, there's one more. And that would be antidote. What's the cure? Well, what does secular psychology have in their tool belt to help you? Pharmaceuticals. Medicine? and talk therapy. And so, again, and by the way, we'd say that people are free to take medicine, and medicine can sometimes deal with symptoms of people's distress, but they don't even claim that medicine cures anything. It can change your moods, it can you know, have certain helpful stress-relieving or uh, suffering-relieving qualities. But it won't take the drunkard and make him free from being a drunkard. It won't take the abuser and make him kind. It won't even take the person who's depressed and give them the joy that God has designed us to have. Whereas, again, for us, and this is really the sermon today, is the answer is, by the way, answer is also antidote. They both work. Answer, antidote, is the gospel, is that... Uh, we are a new creature in Christ. We're set free from slavery to sin. And that's the foundation for the change, which gets back to the aim that we be pleasing to God. So that's one structure. Now, for you know, biblical counseling, now, now I'm actually on my outline. 
And some of them will be overlapped, so I'll go really fast through it, because then I'm going to get to the questions, which can be more difficult. And that you know, our premise would be that when it comes to helping people with their spiritual problems, God has given us in the scripture a sufficient resource. And a passage I love that talks about how glorious the Bible is is Psalm 19. And in the first six verses, it's describing how the heavens declare the glory of God. We would call that general revelation, that God is seen in what he has made. But then in verse 7, it talks about what God's word does. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. And so our view would be that the Bible tells us how to deal with issues of the soul and that it is you know, not just infallible, but it is sufficient. And uh, for those who think a bit more theologically, um, biblical counselors tend to come from a presuppositional view of understanding. Uh, in Jay Adams, when he wrote Competent to Counsel, he actually quotes Van Til both in the introduction and the conclusion. And, the, and part of what uh, Van Til would say, he made a statement, there are no brute facts. And what he meant by that is that when somebody says this is a scientific fact, it comes from the worldview of the person who is making the statement. And so if a person is a hater of God who denies the existence of God and has a wrong view of man, then his analysis of the data is going to be corrupted by his worldview. And the closer you get to spiritual matters, um, which would be you know, matters of the soul, the more their corrupted worldview is going to influence you know, how they interpret reality. And, and so, I mean, some of us already have begun to question the science rather than trusting the science, but scientists are not objective individuals. Scientists have a worldview. They're worshipers of something. They're either worshipers of self or they're worshipers of God. So you either interpret the data from the standpoint of a biblical worldview as the ultimate authority by which all other truth claims are evaluated, and you know, Van Til would say there's not some common ground we can stand on. Either you're looking at reality from the standpoint of scriptural presuppositions as the ultimate authority, or you, you're worshiping something else and you're interpreting by that worldview, which is going to lead you to all kinds of errors, which when I went through those five A's, that would be five ways in which secular psychology would get things wrong. Now, the other thing, and this came up yesterday, is there are some people who are, they would call themselves Christian psychologists or Christian counselors, who would say, let's take the best of psychology and combine it with the Bible, and you can kind of have the best of all worlds. Now, even Jay Adams, who is you know, the, the founder of the biblical counseling movement, and David Powelson, who is kind of the second generation guy who's very highly respected and loved by everybody, uh, would acknowledge that we can learn from psychology. We can learn from their observations. There may even be common grace, uh, things they understand that can be useful to us. But that's not where the authority comes from. And that's not where we turn primarily to help people. That the Bible itself teaches how to address people's spiritual problems. And a problem often with integrating the two is that those who have had primary training in psychology with its unbiblical worldview often primarily practice that and it's been, in our understanding, influenced, corrupted by the bad worldview from which it comes. So we don't view psychology as just some objective science like aerodynamics. We would say that you know, even suke the you know, soul, it's the study of the soul. Well, if you don't even believe we have a soul, if you don't understand who we are, 
your studies are going to be corrupted by your bad worldview. So, not, so biblical counseling will focus on helping people from the scriptures you know, with their spiritual problems, fully acknowledging doctors are good to help people with their medical problems. People have brain problems for which psychiatrists and uh, medication can be helpful. But when it comes to spiritual problems, we want to know the Bible well. So I have 10 concepts, which is another paradigm in addition to my 5A, so I can rattle through them fairly fast before we get to some tough questions. First is biblical counseling is God-centered. I've already quoted 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Uh, Paul writes elsewhere, the goal of our instruction is love from the pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. And so this is, I mean, in one sense, it's really, really helpful in that when somebody comes to see me for advice, uh, sometimes I feel the pressure because they want to hear certain things. Yeah, they want, you know, when people come to you advice, we, we all experience this, right? Somebody's about to leave their spouse. Somebody's about to make a decision you don't really don't agree with, but there's all kinds of pressure to say, yeah, I understand why you want to do that. And, you know, we're family and we're with you. And my position is I want to say to this person what Jesus would say if he were in the room and how would I know what that would be? Well, it's based upon what the scripture says. And sometimes the scripture is going to have things to say to them that they may not want to hear. Because my objective is to honor God. And, and sometimes I, I know I have to say this something to somebody. I don't even want to say it. Because I don't think they're going to like it unless the Spirit changes their hearts. But if I know that's what I need to say, you know, this person is dating an unbeliever. Uh, this person is giving into a certain sin. So as opposed to client-centered therapy, it, where the counselee sets the agenda, our view would be that the Lord sets the agenda. And there's a lot of Christian counseling that tends to really be a bit client-centered as opposed to biblical counseling. And then biblical counseling is based on sound theology. Um, and the program I lead at RTS, which Caroline graduated from with her master's degree in counseling, uh, our people who are being trained to counsel take every single Bible course and every single theology course that future pastors take. She was able to avoid the languages. We did learn Greek early in our marriage. I'm not sure how much she remembers. But our, our view would be we actually have in our program more Bible courses, or Bible and theology courses, than we do counseling courses. And our view, there's an expression I use, which is how thick is your Bible? What I mean is how much of the Bible can you actually access to use to help people? Uh, our students will say that preaching is easier than counseling. Like we do preaching labs and we have counseling labs. Well, in a preaching lab, you come in prepared. Some of them have manuscripts, some of them have notes, but you're kind of in control of the situation. When you practice counsel, you may come in expecting one thing and you get another. And you know, somebody comes to you, what can you find in the scriptures that would help people? Uh, you don't have to have it all memorized, but you, we want people who know the Bible well and have sound theology uh, again, who is man? And every branch of theology applies. So how would eschatology apply in counseling? Do you ever want to use eschatology? Yes, Caroline says yes. She's thinking that Why would eschatology be important? It would be super helpful in terms of comforting those who have lost a loved one. Yeah, we should not grieve as those who have no hope in 1 Thessalonians 4. So it's comforting for those who have lost. Any other ways eschatology could be helpful? Knowing the end, it helps us live in the present. Yeah, light and momentary trials are producing for us a glory overwhelming. The end of 2 Corinthians 4, though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being re renewed day by day. And so. Every, I could do that with every single branch. Of, I'll just take one more. What about the justice of God? How could that possibly help you in counseling? That God will one day finally make right everything that's wrong, every sin that's been Right. So here's a person who's been abused somehow. Family justice has failed. Human justice has failed. Church justice has failed. Yet God is still just. And so even though the people who wronged you may not be punished in this life and the police didn't do their job or whatever, God will bring justice. 
And so I could do that. Actually, in the group I'm a part of, ACBC, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, you have to take examinations before you can be certified. And the examinations are two exams. One is counseling, but the other exam is theology. And there are 25 theology questions. You have to write a page to page and a half answer to each question, and including defending the doctrine of the Trinity and you know everything, you know, justification by faith. But a lot of it is tying the various aspects of theology to how you help people in their counseling. So we need counselors who, who know, who are theologically sound. Then biblical counseling is rooted in sound anthropology. We've already dealt with that. We're made in the image of God and we have a soul and we are worshiping the wrong thing. We are not autonomous. We belong to God. We're accountable to God. Biblical counseling is Christ-centered and redemptive. That's going to be a lot of the sermon today, uh, largely from Romans 6. Is Biblical counseling isn't just moralism, where you, I'm assuming you may have seen the Bob Newhart video, Stop It, where it's not just saying stop doing the bad thing and start doing the good thing, that change comes out of redemption. It's only those who have come to Christ and have been made new people. Before you're a believer, you're a slave to sin. You may be able to exchange one sin for another sin, but you can't live to the glory of God until you've repented of your sin, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're indwelt by the Spirit by which you can fight sin and by which you can bear the fruit of the Spirit. And so, and again, that's going to be a lot of, of the sermon. Interestingly, I will mention that there are some books that I assign a book in one of my, in my introduction to counseling class in which they have five views of Christian counseling. And in this book, they have a case of a guy named Jake. And, and so rather than just presenting the views theoretically, the book takes a case and then it has five different Christian counselors explain how they would counsel this guy, Jake. And there's one biblical counselor and then there are kind of different branches of Christian counseling. Now I would say, that every one of those Christian counselors genuinely cares about people. I'm not questioning whether they're saved or not. I think they're doing the best they can to try to help people. But this guy, Jake, um, I mean, he's showing indication he'd been in war. He shows indications of post-traumatic stress. He has been guilty of probably almost a date rape, but the girl isn't, you know, reporting it because she feels responsible. He's doing some other wrong, some way of use. Anyway, you've got all these things about Jake. And these different counselors are describing how they would deal with Jake and kind of applying their various techniques. And it finally gets to the biblical counselor, who is Stuart Scott. And he's the only one who says, you know, Jake probably isn't a Christian. <laughs> and we need to begin there. That Jake needs the gospel, not just dealing with his stress and trauma or even his, his bad behavior. Um, again, a lot of it being the sermon. Biblical counseling aims at the heart. That's again back to not just behavior. Mark 7, Jesus says it's out of the heart that sin comes. And so you know, the answer, you know, if a husband is not leading well in his family, the answer is not just to give him a to-do list to fix broken things, buy flowers and candy, and that'll make everything right. There needs to be a change of heart. And then if, you, if your heart is changed, out of the heart will flow different behavior. And so, radically different. The biblical counseling is based on the scriptures. We've talked about that in terms of their sufficiency. And David Pallison has an analogy where he says, Sometimes people who try to integrate the Bible and psychology would picture the Bible as a bunch of marbles that might help people, and then psychology has some marbles, and you mix them all together, you got more marbles. And he says, no, the Bible is like a pair of glasses through which you see everything. And it's not just a matter of adding something. It's a perspective on all of life uh, that everything you look at through that lens, and it's comprehensive. Uh, biblical counseling relies upon the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the things of God can only be understood by those who have the Spirit of God. 
And so without the Spirit, they can't understand. Without the Spirit, they can't change. And while you're counseling, Caroline talks a lot about how, how we rely upon the Holy Spirit ourselves. And I'm not expecting new revelation from the Spirit, but I would like the Spirit to remind me of Scripture. I would like the Spirit to work in my heart to have compassion and, and wisdom from the Bible and work in my counselee's heart to be receptive to that. And so it, it's not just something mechanical. Uh, Jesus said it's the Holy Spirit who brings conviction. So you're meeting with somebody and they're involved in some sin. I can show them from the Bible why it's sinful, but the Spirit is the one who has to convince them of that. Uh, biblical counseling is also gentle and compassionate. That's not always the reputation biblical counselors have. Some people, and I think biblical counseling has a couple of reputation problems. One is, I think there have been over the years people who call themselves biblical counselors who tended to be harsh. I think there's some who focus too much on behavior and not enough on the heart, which will be what the sermon is about largely. I also think that some people who are trained in other kinds of counseling are threatened by biblical counseling. And sometimes they can kind of caricature and misrepresent biblical counseling uh, because it is kind of threatening to them. And I sympathize if you've spent uh, years and years studying one thing and then somebody says, you know, you would have been better off if you'd studied something else, meaning the scriptures, that would have equipped you better to help people. That can be uh, unsettling. But Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. And that's a good summary verse where, first of all, if you're going to counsel or confront others, you need to be yourself full of the Spirit. You need to be exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. And he especially emphasizes if you're going to correct somebody, it should be with gentleness. Uh, and so, you know, we, we seek there to have the heart in view. And then I would add also just thinking of, by the way, the compassion. Isaiah 55, when it, we're told to seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near, let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, so let return to the Lord, and he will have compassion. And Jesus also had compassion on sinners. The father of the prodigal son had compassion. And so even though we counsel people who often have messed up their lives by sin, we as fellow sinners especially should be compassionate. God is sinless, and yet he still has compassion on sinners who are suffering because of their sin. And then biblical counseling is not merely for an elite group of professionals. Um, that's already Romans 15, 14. In Galatians 6 also it says, Brethren, if someone's caught in a trespass, restore. It doesn't say elders only or counselors. It says all of us have that responsibility to be involved in restoring each other when restoration is needed as we gently restore. And we already did Romans 15, 14, although some of you weren't there. Paul said, concerning you, I'm convinced you're full of goodness, full of knowledge, able to exhort, admonish, counsel one another. It's the word actually in the Greek, nutheteo. Some have heard of nuthetic counseling. That's another topic. Anyway. And then, ideally, and this is the tenth and very, very important, ideally, biblical counseling takes place in the context of the local church. First Peter 5, elders are to shepherd the flock. Titus 2, older women are to encourage younger women. Uh, the church is the place where ministry happens. And I know there are there are Christian counselors who operate practices outside of the church. I think anybody who is trying to practice Christian or biblical counseling should still do that under the authority of their church. Amen. And that, you know, that's also to people if they have concerns, they can go to the leaders to whom these guys are accountable. But the best place for people to receive help is from the local church. That uh, you know, some people, by the way, a lot of people will come to Caroline and me from other churches and say, we don't want the people in our church to know our stuff. We want to meet with somebody that, you know, we'll never have to see again after we tell them how big a mess we're in. And I, I can understand sometimes there's some shame attached to the sin we get involved with. And yet, God has, your, your church knows you, right? You know, when we meet with somebody, we're like getting this little black and white photograph of their life 
meeting them for the first time for an hour, whereas if someone, if you come to one of your shepherds in the church, they've known you for months or even years, and unlike a lot of you know, counseling in a counseling center, you meet with somebody so many times and then you don't see them again because you've got to slot somebody else to be in where that in the church you're, you're doing life together. And maybe you meet several times with a pastor or a lady in the church, if you're a woman or a couple, and you, know, you work through a crisis together, but then even after the crisis, uh, you're still in the community and there's still a connection and a relationship. Uh, God has given gifted men and women to the church to do this work. And the church, some people, it's like a, the church is the, host, it's the emergency room uh, when people are in crisis. But then even later, it's the rehab center where you can get busy and start serving and caring for others. And a lot of people who have been helped through biblical counsel later want to be able to help others in some role. So we believe the church is the place uh, these things ought to be taking place. Hebrews 13, 17 says... The elders have watch over our souls. And so we don't view counseling as some professional, semi-medical function. It's really shepherding. It's soul care. So I've got some questions in the notes. I'll rattle through, and then I may have time for you to ask more questions. These may be some of your questions. You know, is there any value to studying secular psychology? And I've already indicated that I'll give another way of starting. I think secular psychology can be interesting and useful the way they describe people's problems. They can give a list of here are things to watch out for if someone is suicidal, or here are the stages of grief people typically go through, or even here's how people are physically affected by trauma. So I think their descriptions can be helpful. Their interpretations and their solutions, however, are to some degree typically corrupted by their worldview. If they don't understand who we are, they don't understand sin and what's wrong with us, their interpretation of you know, what they're observing is going to be lacking. They don't even understand we have a soul in terms of the secular people. Um, and then their solutions as well tend to work on nature, nurture, talk therapy, not from the Bible, or medication. And I'm not saying those are forbidden or always useless, but for spiritual matters, people need the scriptures. Now. We actually, at RTS, we do some courses. We have one in physiology. We also have, a, you know, to understand what does a biblical counselor need to know about medical issues and physical issues. There's a new book by a friend of mine that's a, a guide for that. We also have a course this summer where a trained psychologist who's become a biblical counselor, she has a PhD in psychology, is gonna teach kind of what a biblical counselor needs to know about psychology and how we would evaluate that biblically. And, Quite frankly, a lot of people come in and they say, I've been diagnosed with OCD, ADHD, I've been, I'm bipolar, I'm this, I'm, I'm schizophrenic. Well, we need to understand what those terms are, and that's also where the doctors can help us, because there are some situations that probably do have physiological causes. My friend would say, my medical doctor friend who's also a biblical counselor would say, a lot of people who are diagnosed with schizophrenia are literally hearing voices, and there's things going wrong with their brain. I've counseled people who through drugs have damaged their brain. There's really a physiological problem going along with a spiritual problem. And then sometimes you just won't know. You have to be humble. Um, so is there any case ever where we need outside help? And there, there's a quote by Jay Adams. It's a bit simplistic, but it, anyway, it's a paradigm where he said he could deal with any problem with a pastor, a physician, and a policeman. And if someone's suicidal, I mean, you call 911, and they may need to be taken away by the authorities to be put in a place where they can't harm themselves. If someone's abusing and committing crimes, you report that to the authorities and get them away from the people they're hurting. Uh, there are some people who have genuine medical problems. And we've had several cases over the years where uh, medication and medical treatment for psychological disorders has been useful to people. Uh, even some people that they may have, through spiritual um, failure, work themselves like worrying and not sleeping, and then that affects their brains, and they even go psychotic. And if there's medical treatment that will help deal with those symptoms, we're in favor of it. 
but we also don't want to leave it at that. We want to try to help with the spiritual issues that may have even brought on some of those medical issues. And some issues are just plain medical. You know, a guy with a brain injury. Uh, my friend Dr. Hodges believes that many people with bipolar one probably have something going on physically that has them go through these, it used to be called manic depressives. And, and so you know, we want to understand those things. It's a great help to have Christian physicians who both have a biblical perspective and have medical knowledge. That's been a treasure to me. Um, I've already mentioned, I guess, why it could be helpful to know something of psychology. Another analogy would be, if you were in Utah, do you think it's helpful to know about Mormonism? Yes. And so if you live in a psychologized world where people even sometimes just going on the internet or you know, listening to Oprah or something have given themselves a label, it helps to understand what the labels may mean, what, you know, what people will often do. They come in and say, well, I've been, I've, I have this or that. Tell me what you mean by that. But it can help to have some background to interact with that. Um, another question is, should Christian counselors or biblical counselors be licensed by the state? And I wrote a blog uh, for Biblical Counseling Coalition, why I do not want to be licensed by the state. Uh, then I had two friends write blogs saying why we do want to be licensed by the state. <laughs> they're still my friends. I genuinely believe there are many Christian counselors licensed by the state who, who they love the Lord, they love people, they want to help people, they believe they've learned things that will help people. And I think some of the things they've learned may help people. The problem, why, why then wouldn't I want to be licensed by the state? The state can tell you what to do. In my analogy, since I view counseling as being the private ministry of the word, do you want your pastors to be licensed by the state? And do you want a bunch of rules that say, okay, you can preach this, you can't preach that? So if I'm a licensed counselor, at least in North Carolina, and I imagine it's true in most of the states, and a young man comes to me and says, I have same-sex desire, and I want help stopping my same-sex desire, I'm not allowed by the rules of my licensure, even if he wants help overcoming the homosexuality. I'm not allowed to do that or I could lose my license. Uh, likewise, and I've, I've read over the standards of conduct and it's like, if they want you to bring up religion, you can bring up religion, but you can't kind of impose your religion yeah. on anybody. Well, I want nothing other than when someone comes to me to, to it's like you're not allowed to use the only wonderful, perfect wisdom that exists, which is the Bible, unless they ask for it. And I don't want that restriction on me. You know, I, I think there, there's nothing like Scripture to help people. And so I want to be able to, without restriction, just like I would want to preach without government restriction, I want to counsel without government restriction. I do know of people who are Christian counselors who are licensed who basically try to practice something close to biblical counseling in spite of the fact their license says they shouldn't be. Sometimes they'll do that, what they would say, through like prior consent, where when somebody comes to their uh, practice, they'll just say, this is what we do, and if this is what you want, uh, we're gonna do it, and if you don't want it, go somewhere else. You could, anyway, I'm happy to think about that. So, uh, and then, uh, how should unbelievers be counseled? And that's a trick question. Jay Adams, kind of the founder of the new biblical counseling movement over 50 years ago made a statement that unbeliever, if, if, if the goal of counseling is that people live for the glory of God, an unbeliever, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, Romans 8. Therefore, he says what you do is pre-counseling, which is evangelism. Now, I'm happy when unbelievers come to me for counsel. I'm, you know, I was listening to Joel Beakey speak at RTS a while back. He's describing how every time he ride, rides on a plane, he evangelizes the people sitting on the same row with him. And like, I get on a plane, I just say, leave me alone. <laughs> you know, I just want this to get over with. I don't want to talk to anybody. Even if you want to talk to me, just leave me alone. Well, I admire that. I'm, I'm not the guy. We were walking around the, the lake downtown, and you've got people street preaching and handing out things. But I have people coming to me who aren't believers, who say they're seeking help from God and from his word, and they know fully well what they're getting into. 
when they come. And we've seen several people come to faith. Caroline, shortly before we left California for North Carolina, I think it two women whom she was counseling who made professions of faith and appear still to be walking with the Lord. So as people come, and again, it's not just we say repent and believe, that's all we will tell them. We'll even say, oh, here's how the Bible addresses your problem. And since the gospel is connected to all those solutions, we're going to show it relates to the gospel. And then we're going to say, until you know the gospel and believe the gospel, you can't do these things. It's like telling a turtle to fly that you need a new nature. You need to become a butterfly or a bird or something, yes, metaphorically speaking, before you can please God. God has to do something in you. Uh, but people are coming. It's kind of like the product. Of people are coming in crisis. They realize they can't solve their own problems. And what a great opportunity to show them how uh, the Word of God, and especially through the gospel transformation, is uh, possible. Uh, another question is, does biblical counseling ever fail? Well, it depends on how you define failure. When Jesus counseled the rich young ruler to sell all he has and follow him, is that good counsel? Perfect counsel. It's from Jesus. Did it fail? The idea being, sometimes you tell people exactly what God would want them to hear. And success is not that people do what you say suggests is that you are faithful to the Lord. It's like preaching, right? That you're, you're saying, and another example would be in Genesis 4, Cain is angry. The Lord himself counsels Cain. And Cain won't listen. So sometimes you may be faithful in telling people what they need to hear. And you have your relative who's bought into some worldly ideology and they're going to leave their spouse for no good reason or they think they fall in love with their soulmate they're going to leave their family you plead with them and you've fulfilled your responsibility now if they go ahead and do the wrong thing they've made that choice but it's not your responsibility what they did so yes one hard thing about biblical counseling is some people go away sad some people don't want what we have to say and I will also add, sometimes we just don't do a great job. I'm sure there's sometimes that, you know, sometimes we, somebody comes to us and then they go to somebody else and they get better help there. Not every biblical counselor is equally equipped to deal with every single problem. Uh, I don't think I'm very good at counseling children. Caroline is very good at counseling children. Uh, I don't have extensive experience in every kind of counseling. Sometimes the best thing you can do is help them find somebody who could do a better job than you can. Um, then how do you, well, how do you, I guess the next would be who's equipped, who's fit to do this? Well, every believer to some extent, I've kind of go through those three levels, but it'd be the same kind of qualifications of the Titus two women, the elders, the deacons, people who are spiritually walking with the Lord, you who are spiritual. And then I think it's good to be equipped and to be trained. And so uh, that's, I left a church we love in California, where we've been for 26 years, to train future pastors and also women like Caroline and many younger and older women who are in our program so that they can go into their churches and carry out the faithful care for God's people. There are also programs that you know, can do a better job equipping you. You don't have to get certified, you don't have to get a degree to be a great biblical counselor. There are people who can be kind of the level three hard cases who don't have formal qualifications, but they're spiritually mature. They know the Bible. They care about people. But equipping and training can help you, uh, be it through an institution. You know, IBCD has videos and materials online. Uh, some of people here I know have gone to like on-the-road training with ACBC where so there, there are opportunities to learn more in various ways in various places. So, ultimately, this is the Lord's work, and yet it's a privilege sometimes to be able to uh, be used. And I've got 10 minutes, I think, so if anybody has any questions that I haven't already asked myself, or if you want to go deeper into some of my questions, feel free. Yes. Uh, in your outline, you said uh, there is an important connection between your epistemology and your view of counseling. You all on the word epistemology. 
epistemology is how do you know what you know? And it kind of gets back to the presuppositions um, that there seems to be a connection between people who make the Bible their presupposition and, and don't put other knowledge on the same level of the Bible in any sense, and those who turn to biblical counseling, and those who there's the classical apologetics should be closer to what scroll was, and closer to some people's RTS in uh, Orlando, they would kind of say adding other thought is being kind of revealed. They would say general revelation, I would say kind of in common grace knowledge. They would tend to mix them more where the presupposition was you just say the Bible is an absolute presupposition for everything. That's the extent like there are no group facts. That every fact is an interpreted fact in the worldview and the worship of the person who is finally investing. So-called facts. And some people don't understand what I just said and it would take longer to go into it in more depth. Yes. Um, normally, I associate that behavior with sin for me, but someone who's like bipolar or some other disorder, could that person be regenerated and fully Christian and pure but have bipolar disorder and engage in that behavior because of that condition? Right. Or, or is that just. So, can somebody who does bizarre things when they're in the manic phase of being bipolar will still be a Christian. And how would we look at that? So there's kind of two layers to your question. So like, I guess I guess it seems like it's not as simple as stop saying. I agree. So, right. So I would say that a believer could be schizophrenic or bipolar. Really schizophrenic or bipolar. But I would also say we should never make a sickness an excuse for what the Bible says is sin. Yes. We all sin, right? But, and it may be your parents are a bad influence on you because your dad was always angry or your mom was always drinking or you were abused. And maybe even there's something with your body that makes, you know, you have these phases where you're more manic or you're down. Those are influences, but I don't, understand, I don't think you can say biblically that they are determinative. And I can understand that some people, that they have something going on in their body, it makes them really hard, it makes them really hard to resist sin. So I'm going to use an illustration that may get me in trouble. But to use a lesser example, that's an example of something physical. Some women, during a part of a month, have crazy hormonal things going on. It can be very difficult for them to walk before the Lord the way they should. And we as men should sympathize with those struggles. But it doesn't excuse sin. And it even could be a temptation to say, well, because my hormones are messed up, I have the right to be crabby, I have the right to be mean, I have the right to say cruel things. So I would put bipolar in a similar category, is that, and another would be Alzheimer's. You know, people with Alzheimer's are often mean, say bad things, uh, I had a friend of mine recently say, you know, pray that what's in your heart will be better than that. I mean, we all have sin in our heart that if our filters weren't working, we would say some wrong things. It's still sinful. My heart's sinful regardless of what's coming out of my mouth. But sometimes there can be a physical condition that makes the filters not operable. But it, it's still sin. But I'm not going to be judgmental that person. I know that if I had Alzheimer's or if I had those circumstances, my sin too might be exposed. That's a good question. Yes.
well, I'm just, I just want spiritual help. Yeah. So the question is, have any of you seen the movie, What About Bob? There's a movie where, I forgot who plays the different roles, but you've got a guy who goes to his therapist and then he chases his foot therapist around on vacation and is just obsessed. I've had a couple cases like that. And I joked that Caroline has counseled ladies who would move into our house if we would let them. And I think that the issue, Jeremiah 17 might be a good passage where I'll paraphrase verse five, it says, cursed is the one who trusts in man and makes the flesh his strength. His heart turns to the Lord, and he will be like a bush in the desert. You will not see when prosperity comes. But blessed is the one whose trust is the Lord. He will be like a tree planted by rivers of water, who will bear fruit in its season, will not, its leaves will remain green in the year of drought. Okay, summary. That if they're trusting in you, you will not be able to meet all their needs. And yet there's a real temptation for counselees to put you in the place of Jesus and expect you to do for them what only God can do, and you're not helping them. Now the problem will be as a counselor, you like people being dependent upon you, you like people saying they need you, and you're helping them. But if you sense they're putting their hope in you and not in God, I mean, you don't have to answer every phone call or text. And then Ed Welsh in his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, uses that passage and he talks about how when somebody is looking to you to meet needs only God can meet, initially it'll seem like they're almost worshiping you. But sooner or later, you will not meet those needs. And then they'll hate you. And they'll be angry with you. And so I think you have to address the heart problem, which is, you need to turn to the Lord and not to me. And I you know, just, now, they might get, you know, if they don't repent and if they don't turn to the Lord, they may get really angry with you. But that's not your fault. And I think you have the right to set the limits. The word boundaries is a dangerous one because I don't like the book. But you have the right to say, I'm responsible for my job, I'm responsible for my family, I'm responsible for my church. This is what I have for you. And you need to be turning to the Lord for everything, not to me. Uh, there's a verse in Chronicles where it says, Joash the king did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. In the context, basically, when Jehoiada died, Joash went back because his sanctification seemed to depend upon a relationship with a person rather than a relationship with God. So it's a common thing when they'll do that, and you have to be ready to, but again, A would be to refuse, but B is to point out the problem and try to address it as the Lord helps you. Yes? So I think for most of us, our counseling situations are just friends talking to us about things. I'm just wondering if you could give some more advice on when talking with someone that sees everything as um, they're a victim of everything and everything, everything. When you're looking at them going, wow, you're probably the problem. But that whole compassion versus, and maybe it's different with a believer and unbeliever. So. Yeah, but. right. So Oh, yeah, I'll repeat it. So if you're with somebody who's going on and on about all their problems because they're a victim of this, that, and the other, what do you do? And the problem would be there are people who really are victims of horrible things for whom we should have immense compassion. There are some people who create a victim identity for themselves when I mean, we've all been hurt. But, you know, it seems excessive. And it gets back to even the bipolar person is that if you, we've all been hurt, but the Bible teaches that if you're trusting in God, your identity is not victim. Your identity is your new creation in Christ. You take the example of Joseph. He was a victim, right? His brothers, Potiphar's wife, prison, but he walked with God. And so no matter what's happened to you, that you're still responsible to obey God and to serve God, and the Spirit will help you to do that. So, again, I'm telling you the short version. You want to listen, you want to show compassion, even in self-inflicted injury hurts. You know, if your own foolishness has made you miserable, it's still suffering, and you can have compassion for that. But I think that's where also the Bible is so powerful. Rather than just saying your words, trying to give them scripture, yeah. that, uh, that how the Lord 
you know, Psalm 1 is we abide in his word will be fruitful. Jeremiah uh, 17, I already quoted that even if people have hurt us, Jeremiah 75 and 6, as we trust in the Lord, we can be fruitful. That's a great passage for that. Ed Welsh's book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, expands that. So what you're doing, again, I'm thinking probably Rick Pilgrim's progress, is you're on the way with them. You know, Christian sometimes says dumb things that faithful or hopeful need to help him with. And so you're thinking, but what can I say from the Bible gently that would redirect this person? Yes, I know you've heard, but look, the Bible says that as we, you know, in the midst of the difficulty and the sadness and the hurt, if we turn to God, we, we can be renewed and fruitful, and we don't have to be consumed by this. But again, it would be, I'm summarizing my, a lot of times I have a goal with somebody, and you're kind of working your way gradually there by building relationship and caring for them, but that's where you're going. And then I want to quote scripture because that's where the power is. It's not you against me, but it's, here's what the scripture says. That it, it is possible for someone who's been hurt to get beyond that hurt. Another book I can commend is uh, Steve Byer's book, Putting Your Past in Its Place, where you know, you've been hurt. You can either respond to your hurt sinfully or you can respond to your hurt by trusting God. And the former is much more difficult than the latter. Okay, I think we're out of time. So let me pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for these dear brothers and sisters. Help us to care for one another. Help in this church for there to be a culture of soul care and peacemaking. Uh, pray that the church might move forward with more people being well equipped, especially ladies who can help other women and live alongside their husbands and help couples. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.